Traveler has this beautiful characteristic where it's it's happy money, it's money you spend, you wanna spend it on something you've dreamed about. And at the same time, you kinda have to, because if you don't for too long, you go crazy. Hello and welcome to Blue Sky Thinking, a mind-expanding podcast from Globe Trender that explores the bold ideas that are pushing our boundaries and broadening our horizons. I am your host, travel journalist and entrepreneur, Jenny Southern, and every episode I will be going on a conversational journey with the innovators and visionaries who are shaping the future of travel. My guest today is Pierre Bueller, Chief Financial Officer and Chief Operating Officer at Kayak, which is the world's leading travel search engine. As regular Blue Sky Thinking listeners will know, Kayak is our sponsor for season one, so a big thank you to them for their support. Kayak is a travel search engine that allows you to compare prices for flights, hotels and car hire, meaning you don't have to jump around from one website to another making test bookings like I used to do. There are a lot of great features on Kayak for frequent travellers like you and I, so I just want to take a few moments to tell you about some of my favourites. If you're looking at a variety of flights to a certain destination and you'll know roughly when you'll travel but it's not locked in, there's an option to compare multiple departure and return dates. This will show you if it's cheaper or maybe more convenient to fly a day or two earlier or a couple of days later. You can also filter your flight search. For me, that's usually direct flights only, if I can. I like to avoid too much of an early start or a very late arrival, so I adjust the takeoff and landing time. I've been researching a family holiday to Crete recently, and these features have been really useful because my daughter is young and we don't like to fly at awkward times of the day, but we also need to keep costs down. Finally, once you have the options in front of you, you can compare flight prices from numerous online travel agents as well as the airlines themselves. So for your next trip, start your search on Kayak. Welcome to Blue Sky Thinking, Pierre. Thank you very much. Where are you calling in from today? I'm in my yard. I have a small uh, office in a little tiny house uh, in my yard in The Hague in the Netherlands on the coast. And are you doing a lot of traveling these days? I am doing a lot of traveling. I moved to the Netherlands almost a year ago after six and a half years in the US. Um, so I'm, I'm rediscovering Europe through all its proximity and, and the great little trips that we can do for work. I'm also traveling the world. So yeah, in the last year I've been um, in Seoul, Taipei, Hong Kong, Sydney, Miami, New York, all kinds of big trips to visit our offices, meet our people. Uh, yeah, a lot of traveling still. And where in the US were you living? In Connecticut, just north of New York. Uh, sounds a little random, but that is where Kayak got started. Um, so between, between Connecticut and Massachusetts, New England is, is, um, was home for, for a long time, actually. And is it nice to be back in the Netherlands now? It is. People ask me whether it's weird, and I'm always a little insulted um, because I was born here. So it's never really weird. This, is, this always feels like home. Um, but it's fun to be back here. Yeah. And you've got quite a strong American accent now. I do by now. Yeah. I'll shake it. <laughs> and where are the other continents that you've lived on? After my high school, I moved to Argentina in South America um, to spend a year there and, and learn the language, travel around. It's been a, a huge formative experience. I came back to the Netherlands, went through school. During, during uni, I lived in the US in San Francisco for a bit. And then with my first real job at eBay, um, they bought a company that had some assets in Sydney, in Australia, and I moved to, to Sydney. Um, to help run that company for a year and a half, which again was a was an amazing experience. Now, I'd love to hear a bit more about your professional background. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned you worked at eBay for a while. Yeah, I, I came out of school and I feel everybody either went into strategy consulting or investment banking and it, it I don't think either fits me really well. Um, but I was young and insecure and I just had to do one of those, I guess. So I, I went into derivatives trading for a hot second, which was a total misfit, an, an, a very intense testosterone-driven environment that it didn't work. 
through through friends I got acquainted with people at eBay. They were looking for somebody that was good with Excel, and I at the time I felt confident saying I was. Uh, and that was the start of of something pretty cool. I really enjoyed that environment. It was very chaotic. eBay was young and growing exponentially, and it's really set me up for what now is a life where I'm very confident in in chaos. Um, I'm very confident with not knowing details. I'm, I'm happy for stuff to change and move fast. And it's, it's been what I've been doing ever since. So that was eBay for a couple of years in the Netherlands. They bought a, a company called Gumtree that you might be familiar with because it has a big presence in the UK. It also had a portfolio outside the UK, um, partially in APAC. Um, in Sydney, based in Sydney. So I joined there, I think I was the second or third employee. Uh, a year and a half later I left, we had almost 20 people. It, it was going real quick. It was a classifieds platform, as, as it's called. And there was no real established player. There were some yellow pages type companies that were doing that type of work, but they're so offline and so slow and had no understanding of performance marketing whatsoever. So it was easy for Gumtree. Uh, to grab land real quick. That was a lot of fun. Uh, we came back to the Netherlands. Uh, I left eBay, did a little bit of consulting, which again, wasn't really for me. Uh, and then I got in touch with Booking.com, which is actually a sister company of Kayak owned by the same holding. Um, I worked for Booking for over five years. I've done financial planning and analysis, a lot of forward-looking modeling and scenarios and forecasting, all kinds of uh, math that I think is real fun and real cool. Off of that, I was looking for the next step. I really like booking holdings, the the whole conglomerate, um, which was called Priceline Group at the time. So I didn't, I, I did want to move on from booking, but I didn't really want to leave the group. So I asked internally, like, is there anything fun to do? And um, the group put me in touch with Steve Hafner, who's the founder of Kayak. Um, yeah, and we, we got talking about an engagement with Kayak in the form of a CFO position at first. Um, so I took that in 2016, early 2016. Uh, and from there, it's it's grown. As you've mentioned, we bought a couple of companies along the way. Um, I took on a couple of additional responsibilities. So I have, I have my involvement with the commercial side of Kayak right now, um, as well as the whole the whole of people and culture, uh, which all of that's fascinating. And I do feel as a leadership team, we run kayak together. So anyway, I'm involved with anything and everything. We, I, I talk and think about marketing as much as I do about finance. Where did you grow up and what was school like for you? I, I was born in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. I lived in Toronto for I think a couple of years when I was one and two or two and three, so I'd, I have no memory of that. Um, back to the Netherlands, made it through primary school and, and high school in the Netherlands, barely. Um, that was, no, childhood was, was great. I have really fond memories of that. It's one of the reasons we moved back from the US is that my wife's Dutch, uh, and we both have such great memories of high school in the Netherlands, and it was such a, a blissful, fun time. So we wanted to, to give that to our kids too. What did you love about it? Would you say it's different from schools in the US? I think so. I think the pressure was fairly light. Um, there wasn't a lot of freedom. I think there's a lot of development of the individual. Um, there wasn't there wasn't a, a wild focus on competition or even there there was on skill development or knowledge development, but not much on competition. And I I've experienced the US as being very different, which is powerful and has helped me grow individually. I also think it was a little stressful for me as a 30-something year old. Um, so I can only imagine how I would have felt as a, as a 10 year old um, because I was, I think I was an insecure child and it, it's been so great to be in an environment in which that was okay. As I got a little older, uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, I went to a, a strict, I guess a strict high school. Um, which I think has helped me out. I got the discipline from the high school, which has been beneficial. And it's, I also got a little bit of a, a dot on the horizon type definition of this is how you want to be. You want to be like this. You don't want to be like that. Um, and I remember it being stressful. 
I, rem I think I'm an introvert at heart. Uh, when I was in high school, you, sh you shouldn't be an introvert. Like it was very clear you had to be extrovert. You had to be good at socializing, good at talking, good at interaction. Um, and I, I just wasn't. So it felt stressful back then. I've got a, a, a 10 year old boy now who I think is a, is a hardcore introvert. And I, I just find myself telling him all the time, that's okay. Like, that's great. You can be anybody, right? There's, there's people doing amazing, whoever they are everywhere. And there's people being unsuccessful, whoever they are everywhere. Like it's not gonna define you the way people might tell you it will. Um, because I feel nobody told me when I was 10 and it, yeah, I remember that being, being one to discover and it, it took me way too long. Uh, it took me too wide, wide into my 20s to figure that one out. I think that's super interesting. And especially going into adulthood and moving through your career, you know, it's quite, it's something to navigate, isn't it? If you are an introverted person, I, I do feel like I have a tendency more towards being an introvert, but I do a lot of public speaking these days. And it's actually something I've really grown to enjoy, but it's been a process. Are there certain, um, skills or advice or techniques or strategies that you're passing on to your son to help him navigate school as an introvert and maybe, you know, later in life that will be helpful that you've learned yourself from experience? I think the, the main one, I, I recognize everything you're saying. And I do a, a, a lot of speaking and I do a lot of big presentations to big rooms. And whenever I say I'm an introvert, people are like, how can that be? Yeah. Because I just saw you and I always try to explain it's got nothing to do with each other. Like my introvertedness shows up mainly through how I recharge myself and I do it on my own. And, and as long as there's people around, I can almost not recharge my batteries. I, I need to like unplug for that. Um, the, the, just to answer your question, I think the main thing I'm, I'm telling him is that it's so okay to, to be whoever you are. And I think that is something that I felt in the Netherlands more than I did in the US. Um, so if you feel like you, you don't want to play a certain part, that that's entirely fine. And you can achieve whatever you want to achieve, almost regardless of who you are. Um, the way to get there is by being the best at, at who you already are, not by trying to be good at who you're not, because you'll, you'll never get there. You'll always be like, 10 steps behind. Um, yeah, I wonder if that makes sense. It definitely makes sense. That That's such an encouragement that everybody needs to hear in life. I totally agree. I think it will be something that resonates with a lot of our listeners. And it's, it's actually a relief to hear someone sort of say that, because I do think we all put so much pressure on ourselves to conform or to be like people we admire. And actually, it's a real relief to hear, just be yourself and just let yourself off the hook. And actually that's the best course to take. I had, I had early, early on in my career, I had advice, um, almost the inverse advice. People would tell me fake it till you make it, that type of stuff. Um, and I'm so allergic to, I just don't believe it at all. I think fake it till you make it is terrible advice. I think it's very stressful to fake anything. Uh, and I, I, I'd encourage people to say, I don't know if you don't know. That's that's often the right answer. Um, and you want to be you want to teach people to be constructive and proactive. And you want to tell people if you don't know, say you don't know, but also say I'm going to try to figure it out, or I'll send it to you later today, uh, or I know where to get that number. I just don't have it top of my head. Like I'd love people to be honest like that. And I think as soon as you get people into a place where they're comfortable and relaxed, they're they're going to be ten times better. And when they feel they've got something to defend or they, they have a, um, yeah, some sort of reputation to upkeep that doesn't feel sincere, um, that's, it's critical, I feel. I think that's absolutely brilliant advice. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. Um, you know, that kind of idea of, it's actually quite radical that sort of level of honesty, even though it's very basic. But I think especially in the world of business, that fake it till you make it mentality, um, you know, especially in startup culture, as it, it's it's repeated and it's repeated, isn't it? It's It feels like that that is the way to, to operate. And it's refreshing to hear that yeah. <laughs> there is another way. 
So I would love to hear a little bit about what your parents um, did for a living when you were growing up. Yeah, my my dad is a was a professor um, at medical school. Uh, he's a doctor and he's deep into uh, medical university. My mom's an artist and and was a teacher early on, but but is a painter. Um, so they're they're wildly different. They divorced when I was twelve. I didn't quite register that much. Um, I have an older sister who, who definitely has a much more vivid memory of all that going down. Um, but they were both great parents. That's lovely. Um, and are you artistic at all? I think so, actually. Do you, <laughs> Which, do you paint? Do you draw? No, I don't do much. I, I doodle a little bit. Um, but I can see how someday when, when this life is behind me, I'll go and um, I've, I've made surfboards as a oh, cool. hobby, like shaped some surfboards, and it feels like a perfect outlet. It's very precise and it's very detailed and it's very, um, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful little activity. And so you're a surfer? A little bit, yeah. Are you being humble? <laughs> no, actually, no, no. I think I'm not a good surfer at all, but uh, we just moved <laughs> here and close to waves. So I'm, I'm planning to pick it up much more. So what did you learn about money growing up and how has your understanding and perception of money changed since? Um, I learned a little bit about money. My, my parents didn't have a, a lot of money, but it wasn't so tight that it became a massive topic either. Uh, I learned all the basic things. I think I've seen my, my father comes from nothing uh, and has managed to accumulate some wealth for himself and I think he was always very proud of it. Um, he was very good at trading himself. He had ideals, a certain car or a certain watch and he would make that happen for himself. Um, and I've I've been grateful for that for that example of hey it's okay to spend money on yourself if you've earned it yourself like you deserve it. And um, at the same time, because there's something slightly greedy about that, which I'm fearful of. So I want to keep that in perspective. Uh, I, I've been able to because on, on my mom's side, my mom's never never cared for money and has been very good at, at living a incredibly enjoyable life, never thinking, talking about money whatsoever. She was very creative about finding ways to make it work. She had a restaurant in her house uh, that she would do and there would be people making music and um, I, I was a server in the restaurant for a while, and the restaurant was in our living room. Um, but it, it showed me that there's like ha having fun and making money can happen at the same time. Um, and it again, it broke that idea in my head of a job is a is a must do. It's going to be a chore, and you're going to have to do it. But at least you get paid. And it's it's really opened my eyes to you can have fun and make money at the same time. And I've been able to. Uh, for a large part. Yeah. And would you say that money motivates you or drives you? What's your own sort of relationship to money? Uh, it, it probably did. In the beginning, when I started working, I, I got into a corporate environment in which there was a lot of growth and there was a um, need for people to figure things out. Um, eBay came where they, it, it was trying to inspire performance it was, I remember somebody saying something along the lines of, well, your promotion or your, even your salary, it's not a, um, it's, you're not getting paid for your effort. You're getting paid for results. And, and whether your effort was high or low, we don't really care. So you're not going to get a pat on the back for working hard. You're going to get a pat on the back, also in financial terms, for achieving something, for making something better, for inventing something. Um, and it, that did inspire me much more than, hey, I'm going to have to punch a clock and I get paid if, I, if I've done enough hours. Um, so that did speak to me, the, the feeling of, let's go f figure out the next thing to, to break something, put it back together, challenge the status quo. Um, that got me fired up. Um, I started making promotions and all that, making more money as a result. Um, it changed my, my life, my day-to-day -day life a little bit. Uh, was able to afford more stuff. As I told you, I think I'm not terrible at spending money on myself and uh, 
like making my dreams reality, but I'm not. Some somebody said to me, oh, "Yeah, don't you want to get rich?" A long time ago, uh, about some opportunity that I didn't want to take, and my first response, my honest response, I think I am rich. They're like, no, no, you can be much richer. I'm like, sure, but whatever, right? I can can go out for dinner whenever I feel like it. I'm like, I'm. I don't care much for crazy expensive stuff. I would never buy. I bought an expensive car a long time ago, uh, not a long time ago, couple five years ago, because I felt like at some point you have to, and it never felt right. And I really? sold it a year later, and I was like, I don't want. Like, I don't get inspired by that stuff. Like, I, I, I like to live my mom's life to an extent and realize that it's the small things in life that make you happy and uh, money's very convenient it buys you freedom which is critical um but i i don't need incredibly flashy stuff to be happy yeah you've had an amazing uh twin perspective i think yeah, in the way you've been so raised um that's allowed you to sort of achieve a real sense of wisdom about money but also given you i guess um, the right skills to do your job as a chief financial officer. I would love to learn a bit about what you've learned about the travel industry since joining Kayak, which was back in 2016, I believe. Yeah, and, and Kayak's got a got an interesting position in the travel industry um, because, in a way, we have little to do with the actual operations of airlines and hotels and rental car agencies, etc. And at the same time, we're part of the big ecosystem and we see bits and pieces of it. I've learned so much about it. I've, I've learned so much about the user. Kayak is very user focused. Um, there's a, a lot of people that are in touch with users, with partners all the time that bring back information. We talk a lot internally. I think we one thing we do very well at Kayak is have an open culture in which anybody can ask anybody questions and information flows back and forth freely. That's helped educate me across the board. Um, if there's one thing to mention, one thing that I really took away is that travel is a luxury good in many respects. I think we all see it as, right, you f feed your kids and you dress yourself and eventually if you have money, you might travel, um, which we've noticed through COVID, like people will stop doing that um, because it's a stressful time and I always wanted the world to be in great shape. That's good for travel. But the, the truth is, travel is also a real necessity. And I've seen people find ways to travel one way or another. So when borders are closed or um, there's restrictions or something, something is impeding our freedom to travel, people get incredibly resourceful to, to go and travel, which, which doesn't really fit a luxury good. Right? A luxury good is something you chase when everything else is taken care of. But travel has this beautiful characteristic where it's it's happy money, it's money you spend, you want to spend it on something you've dreamed about. And at the same time, you kind of have to, because if you don't for too long, you go crazy. That's, that's one thing. The other thing that I've learned about travel that I think is cool is if you think of all the money that's being saved right now in the world by people put money away for stuff, um, travel is by far the number one reason. And people save for other things too, but people want to spend money on, on travel. They save for it, they save up for it, they dream about it. Um, young people talk about someday I'm going to finally see the cherry blossom in Tokyo, or someday I'm going to make it to the Grand Canyon, or people dream about travel going forward. People in the last leg of their life look back and talk about travel as their most memorable experiences. Travel is so emotional and so close to, to human nature, I think it's really eternal. And it grinded to a halt in COVID and people are like, oh, is travel ever gonna recover? And and all of us are like, it, it'll take a while because it's, it's a luxury good and it's easy to postpone for a bit, but eventually it's gonna yeah. recover just fine because people care so much about travel. What have been some of your most formative travel experiences? I've climbed a lot. I When I was, in high school, I did a lot of trips to, to the Alps to go and, and climb for a bit, which just gave me this. There was a song back at the time. It's a Dutch song, but I, I think the lyrics are something around it. This is my church. And there's other songs that say that this is my religion, this is my church. This is where I come. It allowed me to recharge 
more aggressively than anywhere else near my school or near my life because it's so um it's so solo and it's so it's a wild place just like the sea is with surfing all kinds of trips in europe um meeting people while traveling i did my honeymoon skiing in japan which was a fantastic experience uh yeah there's there's too much all of them together really are the are the big story has there been a mountain climbing experience that was particularly challenging or memorable um a couple i've um i i did some stuff in in argentina um in the andes which was fantastic and i when i was there and then i went back 10 years later with my wife and climbed some of these routes um climbed a bit in yosemite when i was in in when i started in san francisco which is over 20 years ago um and now yosemite is becoming all the hype because of big feature movies uh, which kind of is breaking the experience for me a little bit because I remember it being so. Um, I did a big trip to the north of Norway for some ski mountaineering, which was just such a different road, a crazy experience. Um, but then there's a lot of little rock climbing trips to, to northern Italy, which is such a beautiful way to spend your day challenging yourself and then enjoying the Italian life and food yeah that sounds like yeah. a good uh, contrast um have do you ever get scared climbing mountains a little bit yeah i i always think if you don't have that type of fear at all then it's probably not as enjoyable like you need a little bit of that excitement to um to feel like you've, you're very alive afterwards absolutely get that adrenaline rush now you have two jobs tell us about them and how do you manage your time and your workload yeah i'm um i'm very very fanatic about managing my time and my workload i i think um th there's two things that come to mind straight away the first one is about empowering people which is critical ties back to something we've discussed before i think it's critical to hire people that are really good at something um, and make sure that they're good at something that I'm not good at. Mm. So for instance, I, I had up um, finance across the board globally. A big part of finance is accounting, but I'm not an accountant at all. Um, I'm not even a certified accountant. So my, my head of accounting, our controller uh, knows that. And I tell her all the time, like that's, that's you, that's not me. And I try to tell everybody else, or I try to understand what is it that each of us bring to the table. <clears throat> I'm not better at, at their job than, than they are. They are much better than I would be. And they know that, and together we're good at everything. Um, so as soon as you've embraced that, and for that you need to be honest about what you're not good at, which some people find difficult, but I think it's, it's such a catalyst. As soon as you said, I'm not good at this, can you help me be good at this together? Then you can really start to empower people and let them go free, which which helps make everything scalable. Like otherwise I would be reviewing everything, but there's no need in me reviewing anything because these people are already ultimately responsible. They know they're responsible. Um, I think they take pride in being responsible. I try to be very grateful for them running bits and pieces of the whole portfolio. So together we're good at everything. Um, that That's a critical one. And I think it's a modern way of management still. And I still, there's people that wanna micromanage stuff or review everything or sign everything off. Um, that helps me tremendously with time management. Uh, and the other one is simplicity, which sounds like a bit of a free-for-all, but I'm such a fan of simplicity. I still believe complexity is, is poorly understood in terms of how painful it is. Um, I read something cool, and I don't know who said it, but it, it was in school. Like the answer, the right answer to some questions is that's not the right question. And in school, you never, you're never told that, right? In, in school, you get questions and you're supposed to answer the question. Like if in school you say, well, that's not the right question, I think you're in trouble. But it's, it's in work where everybody 
if you do that, you'll end up with more complexity, more questions, and it's, it's very counterintuitive for all of us to strip it back, to simplify, to do less, to say, hey, let's, let's not care about this, or let's simplify this question down to something so simple that it only takes us an hour to solve. Um, yeah, simplicity is huge for me. It's, it's faster, it's easier, it's easy to hand over, it's easy to not make mistakes, it's, it pays off tremendously. So people love this idea of, hey, we can figure this all out if we just make a huge Excel model with 50 tabs. And the truth is you can get to 80% of the answer in 5% of the time. And that's also good enough to move forward. I so agree. There's, yeah, there's, there's places, I don't know whether it applies to dentistry as well, there's a lot of places in society that need full accuracy and things to be 100% right. Um, technology, internet isn't, isn't one of them. Uh, E-commerce isn't one of them. Like travel meta search isn't one of them. Like here, there's so much development still in the space that we need to just stay ahead of stuff more than try to get them 100% right. And as soon as we try to get them 100% right, we're over investing time. Hmm. But Kayak is a big company, and I, I'm very interested in this idea of simplicity within the context of a big company because I obviously have founded Globetrender and we're still relatively small. Um, and I can work fast, I can work with great agility. And I noticed that when I engage with bigger companies, there is a huge amount more complexity involved and projects that could take me you know, I say, let's say a week could easily take months with a big company. Um, and I wonder how you actually navigate this. Yeah. Help navigate this as a company. Is this a sort of formula that you try and embed within the operation or? I, I think it's all got to do with culture, which culture. is something to, to really understand that that is a real thing, but you have to see it as something you're working on. You're actively working on a culture that we believe in fosters entrepreneurship and uh, inspire people to keep things simple, um, take ego out of the equation, like s s prevent people from doing update meetings and CCing people and sitting people down and show, show look, look what I've done. Like if you can take all of that away and just say, hey, work together, uh, mistakes is another one. So, so your risk appetite as a company I think you need to go and define that because if you don't define your risk appetite, it's very easy for junior people to say, well, there's, there's zero appetite for risk. I need to get stuff right. While if you go out and you tell people, we're going to make mistakes, right? This whole company is, we're moving a mountain. We're going to scratch the wall. Like that, it is just going to happen. If we're going to try to not scratch the wall, we're going to move at a quarter of the speed. So it's a cultural thing. And I think you need to be out there all the time telling your people, don't, don't sit in meetings if there's more than 10 people. Like if you, if you think something is the wrong question, say it's the wrong question. Um, if you don't know the answer, say I don't know the answer. Um, if you make a mistake, like try to learn from it and move on. Try not to make that mistake again. Sure, right? Ideally, we don't make mistakes, but it's not the end of the world. Don't try to prevent making mistakes at all cost, because that is how you, how you like paralyze a whole system. So for me, it's a, a large culture is going to be the biggest part of that. So is this what you mean when you say that Kayak has a startup culture, even though it's a big entity? To an extent, for sure. Yeah, I, I feel uh, startup is a, is a bit of a gimmicky word, which I, I don't know if every company wants to be startup-y all the time because there's some bad stuff about it too. Um, I think the biggest definition is when you're a startup, there's a lot to do and it all needs to get done. Um, and there's not so much to refine just yet. It's all about just making big steps forward as opposed to having a look at a step you made a year ago and try to do it again, but then a little better, a little faster. Um, so we're, we're trying to, to do that at Kayak by asking people to be bold, um, to take, take risks, uh, challenge the status quo, uh, my boss, Steve, is still around, I think, portrays that type of behavior. I think the whole executive suite does that, and a lot of people do it. We try to celebrate it when somebody does that. Um, we try to report 
internally as transparent as possible uh, to make sure everybody feels like this is my company too. Um, I'm not a I'm not a cog in a massive machine. Like we're all doing this together. It, it all ties together. Um, I believe in this idea that it's a it's a company. Like everything fits together. If we're successful, it's because everybody does their little part really well. Um, if we fail, it's because anybody messed up. Like if one of us messes up, the whole thing breaks. If one of us does really well, that doesn't help. We need to all do well and have all the handovers be powerful. Um, so, so giving people that sense, I feel, is very startupy, making people feel like they run the place, uh, giving them transparency. Yeah, all, all that type of stuff together builds a culture that is that is startupy. Um, one thing is that we're owned by a by a much larger company, and I feel they're really good about allowing us to run as fast as we can. Um, but they're obviously also publicly traded. They need to have their disclosures. They need to have their numbers accurate. So we're every now and then trying to find that balance of inspiring our people to move fast, but we also need our numbers to be solid and up to date. Uh, don't cut too many corners. So we're, we're trying to grow up from, from startup hood uh, in certain places. So you're also Chief Operating Officer for OpenTable. What is OpenTable? OpenTable is a, is a restaurant reservation marketplace in which, um, and, and then we have a lot of technology that allows restaurants to manage um, their, their supply on our platform. Um, it's very large in the US, but it's got presence almost globally. Uh, it's a really interesting business model. That's been uh, working like a charm. They've been around for a very long time, longer than Kayak, actually. Um, it's it's a an in, it it helps users find restaurants to to make reservations. It's been a lot of fun being involved in it. How do you book your own travel? Talk me through the process. What's important to you? Yeah, I I believe I'm a total power user by now. I'm I've got a lot of interest in in the product. Um, I use. All our own tools all the time. I think that's another beautiful example of startup culture. Like you use it. If 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 we're not happy using it, something's totally broken. Um, I use Kayak uh, ferociously. I'm big on the filters. We've always been playing with the filters where they should be, what they should be. Um, we're trying to make the filters as smart as possible and understand who our users are, so we don't have to. Um, ask them every time the same questions in the filters. I'm a very different traveler one time from the next. If I travel for business, um, I want the hotel to have a gym. If I travel personally in Europe, I want the hotel to allow pets. Like it's it's just a, an, the opposite use case. So I, I interact a lot with the filters to try to narrow down my result sets. Um, and then as soon as I've got a result set that I feel is a manageable amount of things that I want to go through, um, which again is, is a little different for personal travel. But if I if I go to New York uh, for either reason and I type in Hotel New York and I get 9,000 hits, I'm not going to read 9,000 results. So I filter a bunch, I get to like 40, um, which is when I flip to the map interface. Uh, and then I have a map interface, I often have two, um, because I have the one with my results and then I have the one that actually tells me where I need to be for a conference or for a meeting or something like that. And I I think I visually compare big features on the map to say, hey, I know at the corner of this park is where my conference is. So I look at the result set map and I compare the hotels. Um, I open a few of them to have a look and eventually I pick one. And what kind of useful filters are there? Can you give us some examples of what you might be able to click on? Yeah, for sure. And again, like really depends on how I'm traveling and with whom. Um, with with business, I'm very price sensitive. When I travel for business, uh, I care about a gym and I care a lot about location. Uh, when I travel with the family, a swimming pool just suddenly gives me three hours of alone time a day um, because the kids are at the pool. Um, yeah, yeah stuff. And, th and this is just about hotels, right? If we're talking about flights, you get a whole nother leg. I, I try to be 
as mindful as I can when it comes to sustainable travel. Um, so I focus on direct flights. Uh, I like newer planes. I think that's still an overlooked uh, innovation in sustainable travel. I think Dreamliners and 787s are now whatever 20 or 30% more efficient than previous generation planes. That goes real quick. They're about times, landing and takeoff. Um, and kayak makes it super easy to go and narrow that down and say, hey, I don't want to leave before this because I still want a part of my day there. Um, I, I care a little bit about airline alliances for silly reasons, but I'm, it won't make me overcome a big price difference. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm very much like every other traveler. I've seen focus groups of kayak in the past and some people said, kayak, using kayak makes me feel smart. And I always really love that. And I'm, and whenever I do it, I'm like, yeah, I feel very smart. And I wish everybody could see how powerful this tool is because it's deep in the functionality. Uh, but when you go and in interact with it, it, it really allows you to narrow almost incomprehensible amounts of options down to something that you can really go and, and select from. And so can you explain what meta search is and what that means for Kayak? Yeah, for sure. Meta, meta search, it's, it's not that difficult. There's just so much out there. There's so many providers, um, routes, prices, partners, especially in accommodations, but even in airlines. If you're going from Amsterdam to Barcelona or from New York to Boston, um, there's, before you know it, there's half a dozen airlines that offer that route. And what Meta Search does is it, it brings together all these options from all these partners in a single interface and allows users to go and sift through them and find out which one fits them best. So it, it makes a task that is borderline impossible without MetaSearch suddenly possible. You could on your own go by every airline in the world, go to their website, try to figure out what they're offering, go to a bunch of OTAs as well, see what they're offering, try to write them all down, but you can see how that becomes um, a boiling the ocean type of task. MetaSearch is a piece of technology that does that for you, pulls it all in, searches all these other websites and makes it one clear overview. So you mentioned OTAs and that stands for online travel agents. So yes. how is Kayak different to online travel agents like Expedia and Booking.com? Yeah, so if you if you book a hotel on Booking, um, then then that's exactly what you've done. You made that booking on Booking. Booking will make sure that transaction gets recorded with the hotel and uh, allows all that type of information to exist then and there. Kayak doesn't do that at all. If you find a result on Kayak and you really like that result, you click it and we send you off to the partner or to the OTA to the person that can make that transaction for you. So in that sense, Kayak is really just a search engine that helps users go from an incomprehensible amount of information that has no oversight to a place where they know exactly when they want to go, where they want to go, how much they want to pay, etc. So they brought them, so to speak, down the consideration funnel to a place where they're ready to convert. And that's when we hand them over um, to a partner, to an airline, to a hotel chain, etc. So it's a travel search engine, not a travel booking, booking engine. engine. That's right. Got it. Yeah. That makes sense. So how does Kayak make money? Describe your business model. Yeah, what I just said, if, if you've gone down that consideration funnel and, and we've helped you understand exactly where you want to go, what route you want to book, when you want to fly, um, we'll hand you off to this partner who will either pay us for the lead, for the visit, um, or will pay us if and when you make a booking. That is that is our, our core business model. Um, and then as a as an adjacency to that, we'll, on the, in the experience, we'll show you advertising relevant to your search. Uh, and we get paid by partners for that type of advertising too. So it's it's entirely free for users is probably the best way to describe it. We, we get paid by the, by the partners and by the OTAs uh, for delivering them uh, high intent traffic that is ready to convert. So this company is almost 20 years old? Yeah. Okay, and so who set up Kayak and why? Yeah, Steve, I think I've referenced a couple of times already, uh, did, did together with uh, Paul English, his, his initial business partner. 
um, I think they they saw this meta search philosophy or this ideal as a as a way to solve a problem that in the, in the offline world had never been solved. Like there's always been a tremendous amount of supply out there, options that you could book. Um, right? There's thousands and thousands and thousands of hotels in Bogota that you and I don't know exactly where they are. We don't know what they are. We've got no way to get in touch with them. Uh, I guess the yellow pages was the best way to get in touch with them. And suddenly, by these things being online, drawing all that data into one central database and then displaying them to a user, allowing a user to go through them and select them and carve them up and saying, hey, don't show me the ones with five stars. I want to stay with a friend. Uh, can I have a room with two separate beds? Like suddenly making that possible solves such a huge existing and familiar user challenge. I think that got those two guys very excited. They found out the company, got going, and I think the pickup has shown that indeed this is a user challenge that a lot of people face and people are very keen uh, to, to use Kayak to help them solve this. And how has Kayak's consumer offering changed since two, 2004? It's, it's been, um, it's, it's a work of art that's always in motion, always trying to chase the user. Um, started off very flight focused, to be honest, right, as a flight search engine, just really on, on tickets. The, the accommodation or hotel offering is an adjacency that makes a lot of sense. Uh, prior to the pandemic, but especially through the pandemic, non-hotel accommodations, so alternative accommodations um, became a whole thing. Through the pandemic, rental cars um, exploded and Pikes had them for a long time, but it was always a very tertiary vertical. Um, rental cars became incredibly popular, still are. Um, a little less than at the midst of the pandemic. But yeah, Kayak's been adding verticals, testing new verticals every now and then, pulling one back as well, um, realizing that simplicity gives us that speed. We've played around with the interface a lot to try to um, stay in touch with a, uh, with a generation that wants things to be intuitive and drag and drop and we want to make it easy for people that's that's the whole thing we're trying to achieve um so yeah it's it's been it's being innovated as we speak all the time will you be incorporating ai of any kind or are you already doing that uh we're, we're doing bits and pieces of it uh we're, we were actually a very early mover um with it with a ChatGPT integration um where ChatGPT can pull in kayak data when it when it's doing travel searches on behalf of users. We've got fun little use cases in AI type logic, helping professionals at kayak get faster, better, more accurate at their job. Um, I think that's a one way street. It's just going to get bigger and bigger. I personally don't expect some sort of step change that from one day to the next, suddenly everything's different. Um, as I, I have heard out there. But yeah, I've, I've seen very cool use cases of, um, of AI bots doing image refinements and uh, copywriting tasks and uh, prescribing contracts and, and all kinds of cool things that I bet everybody's seen by now. Um, Kayak's doing a lot of that already and, and will do more and more. So do you think AI will change the way we plan and book travel in years to come? Eventually, for sure. I think people want to converse. Um, humans want to be in conversation with another. That's the way to do stuff. The interface with any sort of online technology has been very text-based, not very voice-based. Um, Alexa and Siri, um, ChatGPT are, are all innovations that have allowed the users finally to use their conversational voice again. We were an early mover with Alexa and with Siri and uh, now with ChatGPT again. I, I think so. I think that's where users want to go. Whenever I can talk to somebody or something, it makes it easier than type. I, I still talk a lot faster than I type. Um, yeah, someday would be beautiful if it's a conversational journey where I talk to a system uh, saying, hey, I've, I've got a day off. Where should I go? Like, is it... Is that affordable? How does that compare to what I normally spend? All that type of stuff. So the integration of a, a chat-based interface 
um, with a lot of data to make it super relevant for me so I don't see stuff that I would never book. I think is a future that that's very exciting and it's going to make it a lot more fun for people. I come across a lot of people working in the travel industry who are either very skeptical of artificial intelligence or just generally very resistant or concerned about the implications it has for their jobs and their businesses. Um, Would you say that Kayak is an adopter, an early adopter of innovation? Yeah, I'd say so. I think that's in our DNA. I think that's a little startup-y as well. Um, I'm not afraid. One one thing that comes to mind that I think is relevant to say when people are afraid of their jobs, whenever there's an innovation that allows something to go faster or quicker, um, that would make a real difference only if you assume that we're already at the efficient frontier right now. If If there's no way for us to do better right now, pending a new innovation, then sure, that new innovation is going to make a big difference. But that would be a little arrogant. If you look internally, there's a lot of things that we should and could be doing better with the tools we already have. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I feel like that that fear of, hey, everything's beautiful. And now somebody's going to bring in something that, no, not everything's beautiful. Just look in the mirror. There's a lot of things we can, can do better, should do better already, that Excel can help us do better, that Google Sheets can help us do better. We'll be stumbling forward um, as much as we have in the past. ChatGPT is going to make that easier. I think it's going to take away a lot of work that nobody wants to do in the first place. We have a lot of robotic process optimization in finance, uh, processing of invoices, accounts payable, that type of stuff. That's been blissful. Like It's made really boring work that nobody wanted to do, that people do with low accuracy by design. It's made it faster, better, quicker, cheaper, everything. So yeah, I'm, I'm full on excited about this. In what way does Kayak foster creativity? It, uh, partially, this brings me back to culture because you need to remind people. I think people want to be creative. I think so many people have creative genes and people love solving problems in a different way. Um, so, so you don't need to make it out of thin air creativity. You just need to inspire people or give people a green light to be creative. And you do it by um, almost literally inviting people to to think that way. We have company values. One of them is be bold. Um, and it's I, I'm proud of that one because I've seen places, especially when I was in consulting, I've seen some companies where, not explicitly, but implicitly they would ask you not to be bold. Just do what you're being told. Don't... don't don't ask too many questions. Just get your stuff done. And at Kayak, I think we're very vocal about the inverse. Please, if you if you have a way to do something differently, if you don't believe the way we're doing something, if you can think of something worth testing, let's, let's do it. And we put through an, an incredible amount every quarter uh, to, to break what's already working and see if we can put it back together. So yeah, it's a cultural thing. It's something to, to remind people that they have the freedom internally to test off, to fail, to learn. Now, a few years ago, uh, Kayak acquired Momondo Group and you headed up that acquisition process, I believe. Can you just tell us a little bit about that deal and what you learned from that experience? Yeah, for sure. I don't think I headed it up, by the way. That's just, again, a team pushing that through. Um, I learned a lot from it because it was by far our largest acquisition to date. Um, We did smaller ones before, but the relative size of the two companies um, makes a huge difference. If you're you're a 100-person company, acquiring a 10-person company or a 5-person company is almost the same thing. Acquiring an 80-people company suddenly brings together two big cultures that we need to figure out whether they're compatible or not. I learned a lot. Momondo is a is a stunning company. Was doing amazing before we bought them. is is still doing amazing. Um, let's see. I think we bought a real company. We didn't buy just a name or or a piece of technology or an office. We bought a company that had a presence, a following, um, a voice, and 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 we had to figure out how we combined that with Kayak. So here we are, Kayak's seven brands, 
globally um, because we acquire these and we learn that they have a unique interaction with the consumer, often in a unique region, as is Mamondo. Um, I, one thing I've learned is that Kayak is much larger than Mamondo, was much larger than Mamondo when we bought him. Um, Kayak was founded earlier. Um, it, it's, it's easy to start to think that this is our space, MetaSearch is our space, and we're acquiring a copycat that came later and is smaller. That type of thinking is infused with ego, and it's a little, it's a little dumb. It, it kind of moves past the point that sure enough, somebody else trying to do the same thing in a different place with different people will have come to different answers and will have found some things that you haven't found. And if you're not willing to be open to that, then they're gonna go to waste. So it, it was fascinating with this little team that we pushed this through with to try to stay open-minded and learn about Momondo and afterwards about Hotels Combined, understand what they do much better than Kayak because there's gonna be stuff that they will do much better. And since we're the new owners of the place, we do ourselves a big benefit by understanding what these unique things are and try to foster them. In fact, try to copy them into Kayak and get Kayak to learn from our new acquisition, albeit smaller, but try to have cross collaboration and, and both benefit from this. Um, so that's a big one. Um, that's the biggest one for me, actually. Yeah, and we're still figuring this out and, and trying to understand how to run seven brands efficiently. Um, and, and I don't think we have the perfect answer yet. What advice would you give to other business leaders when it comes to acquisitions? What mistakes should they try and avoid? Um, I think I think often acquisitions start on a piece of paper or in a spreadsheet. Um, it's a lot about financials. The, the rationale is often, often financial uh, to an extent. The culture fit of two companies, when you're talking about this, a hundred person company acquires a 70 person company or like when you're both significant enough, you're going to have to think about the culture fit of the two brands. And it is going to be the biggest factor in your success. If you have the culture fit, it's going to make everything so much easier. Um, that's, that's one thing. And it's something that's easy to overlook. It doesn't apply when a hundred person company acquires a five person company, because then it's, it's more of a tuck in type logic. That's one. Uh, the second one for me is, what are you actually acquiring? Are you, are you buying this company for its name or for its um, Rolodex or for its technology? Like what is the real rationale for this acquisition for you? And be honest about that. Like it's really helpful to, when we bought Mundi, uh, you you just referenced that. Mundi was much small, much, much smaller than Kayak. It was, very easy for us to define this is the reason we're buying it and if that's what we're saying then straight up everybody's got their expectations aligned if we would have bought Mooney and said hey you're going to always exist as a separate company with your own office that's not sustainable it's not really how we're going to be able to follow through with it and as such if you're not honest about it eventually it's going to lead to disappointment and confusion so that type of transparency is critical for me Let's do some blue sky thinking. What is the future of travel search? And is there a big vision for Kayak for the next 20 years? Well, there's there's Kayak as a as a meta search, which has a lot of runway ahead of itself, um, going conversational, going more personalized, uh, increasing its relevance, predicting more about what what you're looking for and what's relevant to you. There's a whole space that is a little bit more advisory where a lot of people don't know where they want to travel and are actually looking for inspiration, which is, is not an organized space. There's everybody knows somebody who's lived somewhere or knows somebody who knows somebody who's lived somewhere who might have some advice. But that whole space is, is a, a very natural playing field for Kayak, where Kayak can add value to users that are higher up the funnel, need, need inspiration if that makes sense. Um, so that's the, the meta search path from here on out, which is um, long and wide 
and, and has a lot to go. And I'm really excited about Kayak staying true to that core and and getting making that bigger and getting it getting it really going. Um, there are some adjacent spaces that I think are really exciting. We, we're playing a little bit with um, hotel technology, um, having hoteliers find ways to list themselves, help them operate their hotels. Um, there, there's, there's something there, but it's very small and we need to understand what it is. Something much more formed, but still early stage, is Kayak for Business, which is a, um, it's a meta search skeleton but built on top of it is a whole bunch of um, features that businesses really need when they're traveling for business you need reporting you need sign-offs you need a policy that feeds in there so kayak for business does that it allows a company to um, upload a policy it'll label results as in and out of policy when you want to book something it straight away fires off a request for approval to your manager it really helps companies book company travel uh, in a 21st century. There's a there's a couple of companies that do this, uh, have been doing this for a long time. They're established, but that experience really doesn't do justice to what's possible today. And, uh, and Kayak is dipping its toe in, it, in the water there, and everything I've seen so far is really exciting. So that, to me, is, is going to be a big part of the future as well. Now, we are, you know, at the dawn of the metaverse and artificial intelligence, as we've already been talking about to some extent. In 20 years' time, do you think people are still going to be using the internet in the same way, sort of opening a, a web page and typing in and clicking filters and doing searches for trips or do you, in, this, in this way that, that we already are? Or do you think it's going to move into a completely new realm um, in terms of the consumer interface? I really believe that the typing is going to dwindle out of the user interface. I think a lot of it's going to be prompting through voice, um, which either goes through Internet of Things or phone or even your computer. Um, I I think relevance is just has such such a uh, a long path ahead of it to just increase tremendously um, and make sure a lot of stuff is is pre-filled and fits me really well in my user journey. Um, so, so both of those are very exciting. Both of those are spaces that Kaya can play in. Uh, the metaverse is one that I'm very uncertain about and still don't quite understand what's there to do. Um, I, I do love the fact that Kayak, at least as far as I see it, would be totally willing to try something if we feel there's something there, try to learn from it. Maybe we, we have to then do a U-turn and back out of it or or double down, um, but I haven't yet seen anybody bring me a, a, an exciting story about the metaverse. I think we're all a little wait and see and unsure that this is uh, the right speed of, of development or whether this is a step too far. I think this is the thing, isn't it, with innovation? It's it's often quite hard to know when the time is right to jump on something, you know, whether you're too early or if you're a bit late and it, you've kind of missed the wave, getting that that timing right is so critical, isn't it, when you're an early adopter? Yeah, you you want to be the early bird, but you don't want to be the early worm. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and investing in the metaverse uh, and in that kind of technology, it can be very expensive. So, you know, if it's, it ends up being a bit of a gimmick and you've thrown a ton of money at it, that's a bit of a hard yeah. lesson to have learned. This is this is a beautiful example of where simplicity is very powerful because a lot of this dipping your toe into stuff gets expensive. The question for me with marketing budgets is often, what is the smallest amount of money that's going to give us enough signal to understand whether this is true or not? But sure, if you want to do out-of-home advertising, well, you have to at least spend this much because that's what other companies spend. Okay, interesting but what's the smallest amount of money that gives us a couple of billboards enough to see what people do with it whether as interaction whether as sort of pickup whether we have a lift in searches from that location so doing i think it's called pre-dotyping pre-prototyping um doing that right is a is an absolute art and i think it's it's something that you can get a big difference from as a company when you 
learn, how to test quick and small, learn fast, and then figure out what to do. I don't know if you play poker. No. I play poker now and again. And in poker, we call that a taster bet. When you make a bet yeah. to see how the other person is going to res respond, if they come back big over the top of you, then, you know, they've probably got a good hand. And that is useful information to have. So I think that brings us to the end of our episode. And I've learned a tremendous amount from talking to you. Thank you so much. I would love to just end with three key takeaways. It's It's been rich with ideas this conversation but three things that have really stuck out for me um going back to the beginning i really liked what you said about how it's okay to be an introvert it doesn't need to be something that holds you back in life or your career don't fake it till you make it be honest and the third one choose simplicity over complexity and that's just such simple, easy, memorable advice to apply in your work and in your life in general. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Jenny. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to Blue Sky Thinking with Jenny Southern. Before you go, I want to give you a special discount code for our Premium Vault newsletter, which explores emerging travel trends on a weekly basis. Some of the trends we have explored in recent months include survival scenarios, new age wellness and wilderness over-tourism. And what's great is that as an annual subscriber, you get access to all this content in our trend library. So if you would like 50% off an annual Vault subscription, use discount code BLUESKYTHINKINGALPHA as one word during checkout. Just visit globetrender.com vault to get signed up. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate, review and subscribe to Blue Sky Thinking so it's stored in your podcast library, making future episodes easily discoverable. Thank you again for listening. Until next time, keep your head in the clouds and embrace the power of Blue Sky Thinking. <laughs>